State representatives are on the verge of passing or dropping laws that will affect all Floridians. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Florida lawmakers are meeting for the annual legislative session starting Tuesday. We examine some of the bills making their way through the new legislative session. Next, plans to build a University of Florida graduate campus in West Palm Beach are officially on pause. We explore what the fallout means for the city. Finally, after a special election, the city of Miami has a new commissioner. The political newcomer will talk about what her win means to the people she's representing. All of that today on the South Florida Roundup. I'm Wilkin Brutus, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Florida lawmakers are set to meet for the regular 60-day legislative session starting Tuesday. Representatives will decide to pass or drop laws that will affect all Floridians, discussing topics including affordable housing, term limits, gun laws, and the next state budget. Proposed bills such as House Bill 543, which would allow permitless carry or constitutional carry, have been on our radar for months, and some have already been making their way through the legislature's committees. We're taking a look at some of the biggest bills up for discussion this month. Joining joining us uh, are Mary Ellen Kloss. She's Miami Herald's Capitol Bureau Chief and Representative Kelly Skidmore, a Democrat who represents District 92 from Boca Raton to Boynton Beach. Mary, Kelly, thank you for joining our program. Good to be here. And a note, we reached out to several local Republican representatives, and unfortunately, they were not able to come on the show today. But the invitation to speak with us on the South Florida Roundup still stands. Uh, To start us off, let's discuss the possible changes to gun laws that are headed to the legislative floor. The bill would also expand community and school safety uh, tools. Republican Senator Jay Collins of Tampa and Republican Representative Chuck Brannon of Lake City are the sponsors of the permitless carry bill, which is now the public safety bill. Here's Representative Brannon discussing the bill. This audio is from the Florida Channel. This bill will simply allow Floridians to carry their concealed firearm without the red tape and expense of a government license. Florida will not become, will not come between you and your freedom to protect yourself. Now, Brennan noted that this bill would put Florida in line with 26 other states that have some form of permitless carry law. Mary Allen, this was filed by Senator Jay Collins of Tampa. Take us through this bill. What exactly does it entail? Well, this essentially removes the requirement that if you uh, have a gun, you no longer have to uh, carry a permit or get required training to to uh, put it in your back pocket or in your purse or wherever and carry it with you. Um, it does not open. It does not allow for the um, open exposure of the gun. It's not open carry. It is still. It's called permitless carry, um, and. Uh, it, if you already are prohibited from carrying a weapon and, you know, because of some uh, previous felony conviction um, or other uh, restriction, you may not carry the, a gun. But and also there are certain locations under law like courthouses, voting 
locations, uh, the the Capitol, meetings of the legislature, places like that, where guns are are currently prohibited, and that would continue. Hmm. So there are some conditions attached uh, to this bill. W- what are you hearing from supporters of the bill? Well, um, the most important supporters is the uh, Florida Association of uh, Sheriffs, and they are supporting this. Um, in large part because the existing training laws really are kind yeah i think in their view are meaningless um and they see that other states often offer this uh option and they don't see as it as an a, a, an enormous change um i think in many ways that is um uh, kind of a, a politically convenient way for them to um be able to not go against the grain here. But as you know, there is a, a pretty loud minority that is opposed to this bill. Uh, well, there's two groups that are opposed. Those that are you know, obviously opposed to increasing the number of weapons on, on our streets and, and gun safety advocates specifically are worried about the um, introduction of guns in schools. But then there is the people who call themselves proponents of what's what they call constitutional carry which is basically the open uh ability the the ability to carry uh firearms openly in public and they're angry because this bill does not allow that to happen hmm. so there are obviously supporters some dissenting voices you also mentioned some of the conditions surrounding this particular bill uh representative skidmore Will this bill affect the state's process of background checks and firearm purchases in general? Well, not necessarily. It uh, So if you currently, if you have a weapon legally and you would like to carry it in a concealed manner, you uh, uh, obtain a permit and um, law enforcement knows when they stop you for anything or when they come upon you and and you say i have a weapon and i have a permit to carry it um those are the that's the the small safeguard that we have in place the way the legislation would change that is anyone can carry a weapon who owns a weapon whether they own it legally or illegally won't be determined um, they just will be able to carry it. So, for example, um, if you're, you know, talking about a neighborhood where um, maybe uh, people that you wouldn't want to be carrying weapons uh, now, they're they're like, well, this is great. Now it won't be uh, illegal for me to have my weapon concealed because nobody needs a permit uh, to carry a concealed weapon. Um, and I, I feel like that is really just exacerbating gang violence and um, encouraging um, antagonists and others who think that, you know, they can take the law into their own hands. I don't know how, um, if we're encouraging people to have weapons on them uh, and we're saying that the government is not going to stand, you know, require uh, a a piece of paper for you to have your gun. The government is still going to require a piece of paper for you to get married, a piece of paper for you to have a fishing license, a piece of paper for you to um, buy a house or sell a house. 
So the the ridiculousness of the argument that the government is not going to stand in the way because you have a First Amendment right. Well, I have a First Amendment right to the pursuit of happiness, and that is <laughs> streets without guns on them. <laughs> so um, I think that there are arguments uh, definitely in um, opposition from a lot of organizations. And I think also that there has been significant arm twisting in the legislature to get legislation like this passed. Um, it will, and it has so far in committee, um, been voted on along party lines with uh, Democrats voting against and Republicans voting for people to be carrying weapons um, with without anyone uh, having been trained and, to and, use the firearm. And Representative, let, let's talk about those differences. Uh, this is, in fact, uh, tacked onto a bill containing school safety measures and such, correct? Hmm. Yes. Conveniently, um, where is the bill in the legislative process currently, and, and how far does it have to go? It has been heard in two committees already. Um, it is my understanding that the Republican leadership would like it to pass out um, of the chambers uh, the first week of session. When asked about the bill, Senator Jay Collins said this on the Florida Channel. Overall, it's about protecting those things that are most important and most valuable to us. It's our families. It is our children. If you look at this, we have a God-given and constitutional right to defend our families. I think we all agree on that. This bill establishes permitless, concealed constitutional carry. Senate President Kathleen Pasadomo said, quote, this comprehensive legislation ensures our laws respect the constitutional rights of law abiding Floridians, while at the same time incorporating valuable tools recommended by law enforcement that will increase the safety of our schools and communities, unquote. Representative Skidmore, what, what's your response to these positions? I believe that this permitless carry legislation has been cloaked in school safety. Um, to give those Republicans who are going to vote for it some cover when they go back home and have to tell their constituents that they voted in favor of this legislation because every poll taken will tell us that Floridians do not want this legislation. And the Floridians who, um, who testified uh, opposing the legislation were in two camps, one who didn't want more weapons on the on the streets and another group who want open carry on the streets. And the remarks and comments from my Republican colleagues were, we're going to get there. This is just the first step. So this is the first step to having open carry in the state of Florida. And that is not what Floridians want. And Mary Allen, let's let's bring you back on here. Have you spoken to members of the community? What what sort of responses have you gotten uh, since you've reported on this? Well, my colleagues have done um, most of the reporting, but the feedback is very mixed. I mean, there there have been folks who've come up from um, the local community, especially those in schools, um, and are very concerned about what this does. I think Representative Skidbor mentioned the pre the prevalence of gang violence. Um, this this does seem to take away one more lever for law enforcement to go after folks for uh, illegal possession of, of uh, firearm. And that how that relates um, to protecting children seems to be one of the prominent concerns here, especially as we are facing 
um, and are increasingly aware of the mental health challenges facing young people, um, which is really becoming almost epidemic proportions. And so it's it's a very, um, that's that seems to be the major concern that we're hearing. I'm Wilkin Brutus. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WRN. I'm speaking with reporter Mary Allen Kloss, uh, Democratic Representative Kelly Skidmore, about bills making their way through the new legislative session. What do you think about the bills being presented this session? Call us, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. And we actually have a caller, uh, John. Are you yeah, there? Hi. Hey, yes, how are I you? I am. I'm fine. I trust everybody there is fine as well. Thank you. I just ha- I just have a quick comment, and that is, uh, not that I like the idea of the bill, but I would find it a little bit less objectionable if the legislature, uh, if the bill said that uh, it didn't restrict carry on to the Capitol and the legislature, it seems to me that uh, the legislature has decided that it was important to protect themselves against people carrying guns, but not the rest of us. That's all. I'll take uh, the comments uh, from your guests off the air. Representative Skidmore, uh, your response to that? Well, I don't disagree with the caller. Um, I think that um, there's there's always a, a level of hypocrisy happening in, in the legislature. Um, but but this bill really is one of the ones that rises to the top. You know, I understand uh, why so many people are fearful about mass shootings. They're in the news all the time. It's it's. I mean, since the beginning of the year, it's hundreds of people um, and and it's March 3rd. So I understand that Governor DeSantis asked the law enforcement officers in Tampa to not allow weapons, but to make sure that he wasn't the one um, credited with asking for that, because we are fearful of those those situations and adding more guns um, that are unregulated. Don't forget the the Constitution um, that allows the the bearing of arms. It says a regulated militia. Well, there, there's no regulation here, so so it's a violation of the Constitution to start with. The the this legislation. I think that if you're going to stand on your values and you think that people should be allowed to carry concealed weapons wherever they go, then you should be brave enough to allow them to come into the house where you work, which is the Capitol. Uh, reporter Mary Ellen Claus and Representative Skidmore are discussing uh, the way in which the community is responding to this bill. And we have another caller who would like to join our conversation. Lloyd, are you on? Yes, I am. Thanks for joining us. What's your question? My concern is that it's difficult for black folks in Florida to move about, drive their cars. And now you're going to have a situation set up that the police don't even know if you're a person carrying a gun or not. So that may give them more justification to be even more aggressive toward drivers. The previous caller was John out of Boca Raton. Lloyd is out of Miami. Uh, Representative Skidmore or Mary Ellen, um, any responses to the sort of racial dynamic in regards to this bill? I think that aside from the support that the Sheriff's Association has provided, 
law enforcement officers are concerned about this legislation and are concerned about how it will impact their day-to-day -day life when pulling someone over, seeing a firearm not and not being able to do anything about it, not say, do you have a concealed weapons permit? Is that gun legal? There's As long as you have a driver's license on you, um, nothing will happen. And if you don't have the driver's license on you, you get a fine for not having the license. That's it. Hmm. So um, I think that it, my my previous comments in regard to gang violence, the, the flip side of that is those law-abiding black and brown citizens who uh, sometimes are um, are profiled, sometimes profiled by law enforcement. I believe that, you know, that is going to be an issue for law enforcement and those people. Uh, Mary Ellen earlier talked about the community responses to that bill. And uh, Representative Skidmore, you've also discussed um, uh, the, the sort of community responses to this bill. And I think it's a great segue into education. Uh, let's switch to that. Vouchers were created as educational possibilities for low-income or special needs families and their children's education. Uh, it is a complicated system, started 25 years ago. Now Florida's House Speaker, Republican Paul Renner, has presented a new plan, House Bill 1, that will allow any student to use the voucher at their choice of private, charter, or homeschool. Last month, Speaker Renner told WPLG that students don't always thrive in the school environments that their zip codes placed them in. Here's a clip from that conversation. So we should have other alternatives, whether that's charter schools or home schools or private schools. And so this bill is really an extension of what we've begun so that every child gets the education that best fits their individual needs. He went on to say that this bill would eliminate wait lists for these vouchers and get all students the education they need. Uh, Representative Skidmore, there's a demographic of people who already complain about their money going to public schools. How are these folks going to feel about their money now going to private and charter schools? So the I'm, I'm a little confused that the speaker and others keep throwing charter schools in because charter schools are public schools. Um, they're, they are funded with the same dollars. Um, they just have different um, requirements for um, reporting and different requirements for testing. Um, so charter schools are public schools. Uh, public schools also, the public school systems also have magnet schools and um, professional uh, tracks in, in different schools. There is so much school choice already uh, for those who uh, are in a, a, a failing school and want to go to uh, a different school, a private school, they often have to come back to the public school and they are a year or more behind their cohorts and their peers from when they left because private schools don't require, are not required uh, to have certified teachers. They're not required to teach the same curriculum. They don't have the same testing standards. So if all things were equal, um, maybe I would have a different opinion. But what the Republican leadership wants to do is take, we don't even know how much money, but somewhere around $3 billion out of public education and put it into corporate private schools. 
Because as you can imagine, corporate schools from other states who know that now they can get upwards of $8,000 per student from the state of Florida, and they can come in tomorrow or the day this bill becomes a law and open up a school, not have certified teachers, not have any standards, not have any uh, curriculum that is the same as what is required for public schools. It is, it, it is cloaked as if it is school choice, but we in the state of Florida have tremendous school choice available to us now. And if you're talking about the money should follow the student, well, I don't have a child in public education. Thousands and thousands of my constituents who are seniors, right, right. they don't have children in public education. Do we get to say where those tax dollars go? Representative Skidmore, no. one, one second. And, and Mary Allen, ha have you done reporting on this issue? Yes, I mean, we have focused on this issue. This is this is a, the latest version. <laughs> Of years of coverage on this, yes. And and, and what what are your thoughts? What 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 are some of the responses that you've been receiving? Well, I mean, the there are a lot of unanswered questions. <clears throat> this bill has to go through the process, and the, and one of the biggest questions that is unanswered is how much will this cost the state? Um, right now, there is a, a, you know, as as Representative Skidmore mentioned, there are people who already are sending their children to private schools or homeschooling them that would now be entitled to receive state money. Um, and according to, um, you know, how much of that will be going into their pockets. And the other, I think, more significant question is what kind of oversight will there be? Um, right now, the bill doesn't really have any guardrails for um, you know, what they're calling the education savings accounts. And they are, um, they appear to be opportunities for parents to be putting it into things that are ancillary to their school, to their, to their child's actual school. So um, who's going to be overseeing that? Who's going to make sure that things don't, that this money doesn't go into the wrong place? Or is it going to be a trust, trust us idea um, there, you know, there have been uh, examples in the past where um, charter school, for-profit charter school directors have hired their own consultants and advisors and taken the money um, by steering it into, con into contracts from companies they own. Um, what is going to prevent that from happening now on a broader scale? It seems like they're, you know, that they need to do some, um, they need to in increase some uh, guardrails. Right. And, and the let's talk about the budget here. Let's, we, we brought up money earlier. The main job uh, Florida legislators need to do each year is to pass a balanced budget. It can be easy to forget that as contentious topics rise up each year, Governor Ron DeSantis has proposed a record-breaking nearly $115 billion, $115 billion state budget. Uh, Mary Ellen, what are the key takeaways in the proposed budget? Well, um, as you mentioned, it is this is the governor's proposal. And um, in normal years, the governor's proposal would be kind of stuck on the shelf and the legislature would just come up with their own proposal and the governor would have the veto authority and line item authority. But this is a rare year. And that is because we've got a very popular 
governor who is perceived as a um, as a likely candidate on the presidential stage. And so the 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 leadership, the Republican led leadership in the legislature is very likely to give him everything he's asked for. Um, and that includes what he's asked for in his budget. Now, there will be a lot of things that they try and include for their own constituents. Um, that's just how the, the things get greased in Tallahassee. But um, the main takeaways for this governor is, you know, an enormous um, $1.5 billion in sales tax exemptions. Um, and that's going to include some new items. There's there's also um, additional money going into some of the governor's priorities. For example, it's not a big ticket item, but he's going to have another $12 million to, quote, relocate migrants. And this time he doesn't have to um, limit it to Florida. He can spend money moving a migrant from Texas to California if he wants. Um, there's also um, a few other things in there that are designed to um, for the governor to use for his quote, quote, blueprint for America. And that is additional money for the Office of Election Crimes and Security. That's the group that right now is not very well staffed. Um, and they have they're going to now, you know, they've, they're um, going after people who they have said have committed election fraud. Hmm. Um, and, and then he's going to have a big boost in funding for what he's created. His, his, he's creating a new state guard that is not control, that is not working with the federal government like the national guard is, but it's just a state, uh, a state entity that the governor can use for his own, does that, you know, for at his own control, his right. own uh, command. Right. That That is a lot of moving pieces for that uh, record-breaking budget, uh, state budget. Mary Ellen Kloss is Miami Herald's Capitol Bureau Chief, and Democratic State Representative Kelly Skidmore represents District 92 from Boynton Beach to Boca Raton. Thank you both for providing your expertise. Thank you for inviting me. Still to come, still to come, plans to build a University of Florida graduate campus in West Palm Beach are suddenly on pause. Found out why. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Sorry, Gators. The highly anticipated plans to build a University of Florida graduate campus near downtown West Palm Beach won't happen anytime soon. The fallout stems from a disagreement between a developer and officials over the naming rights of the graduate school. The university announced Tuesday that it is pausing deliberations for the for the 12-acre campus because of, quote, some regrettable divisions in the local community. West Palm Beach Mayor Keith James and Palm Beach County Mayor Greg Weiss released a joint statement Tuesday saying they will continue to work with the university and remain, quote, cautiously optimistic about the plans moving forward. The campus was announced two years ago. It was designed to attract professional and graduate students studying in areas from data analytics and finance to artificial intelligence. But all of that is on hold. Joining us to discuss what led to the university pausing its decision is Alexandra Clow. She covers business for the Palm Beach Post. Alexandra, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. West Palm Beach has been attracting a lot of big name companies and University of Florida campus was seen as the icing on the cake. Uh, Before we get into the details, let's set the scene. Where was the campus going to be located? 
The campus was going to be located on 12 acres of land in downtown West Palm Beach. Uh, the land consisted of county and private land, uh, and it was going to be right along uh, Tamarind Avenue between Daytura and Fern Streets. So right near the Brightline passenger train station, as well as the tri-rail station. Right. I know that area pretty well. And, and how big of an impact does this pause have on the city of West Palm Beach? At this point, I think everybody is holding their breath and still hoping that the campus plan could come together. For many years, uh, city leaders, business recruitment leaders, and company executives all have said that West Palm Beach would never attain next level status without the presence of a major university. Frequently, cities such as Boston, um, California cities were brought up in comparison to the value of a established research university and the University of Florida, the fifth ranked public university in the nation, according to U.S. News and World Report, would have fit that bill to really bring the city of West Palm Beach, as well as Palm Beach County, to a new level of investment and, uh, of course, services, programs for university, for faculty, for companies, for every stakeholder ranging from education to lots of other nonprofits and really round out the city, unlike anything that previously had been seen in Palm Beach County. Yeah, you're right. There, there's a lot of business folks, elected officials, uh, a lot of community stakeholders who are expecting a lot of economic activity surrounding this campus. But Alexandra, so let, let's get to the bottom of this. Uh, one billionaire developer, Jeff Green, and the university didn't quite see eye to eye this is the same Jeff Green who ran unsuccessfully for governor in 2018. Your report says he was promised a school to be named after him once he agreed to donate five acres of land for the project. What went wrong with this name and rights agreement? That's a great question. And um, it really comes down to, at least from our reporting thus far, I would say a combination of issues. Steve Ross, who is the chairman of Related Companies, which is a major New York developer, and also the owner of the Miami Dolphins, has been pouring money into West Palm Beach for the past 20 years, starting with the construction of City Place, now known as The Square. And I spoke to Steve uh, Ross, and he told me that uh, it was his idea to bring the University of Florida to West Palm Beach. After sharing that, um, I'm told by him with the governor and university officials. Um, two university officials did go to meet with Jeff Green during the summer of 2021 at his uh, home in the Hamptons. And he was very enthusiastic about contributing to this effort. Subsequently, in early February 2020, 2022, excuse me, a top UF Foundation official sent him a letter that said that the school would be named the Jeff Green School of Technology and Innovation. And then it seems as if perhaps the university may have backed away from that promise, which was important to Jeff Green because uh, he was proud of that. 
And, 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 and just to clarify, the school is essentially ask or Jeff Green was ex essentially expecting the entire school to be named after him, not a particular building. He was told it would be the entire school. And I have the letter that says that. Wow. Subsequently, uh, there was other correspondence that said that it would be a building. And um, so it seemed as if there um I don't know if there was confusion or a walk back by UF. Certainly he feels that way. Um, so additionally, Jeff was concerned that UF would actually build what they said they would build. So he uh, included provisions for the donation that would require UF to meet certain enrollment guidelines as well as construction deadlines. And eventually the university felt that they couldn't uh, abide by all of his requirements. So late last year, they decided to try to buy the land from, from Jeff. Uh, negotiations, however, fell apart late in 2022 in December. And so by January, things were pretty much at a stalemate. Wow. And so were, were those conditions and requirements spoken about previously but before they decided to say hey this school is going to be named after you was that something they discussed before making that decision that's unclear but i know that jeff's well jeff did tell me that after he expressed enthusiasm for donating uh, five acres of his very prime downtown land he said he learned that there this was a more complicated process than he first had thought in fact i quoted him back in august 2022 when the county struck a uh, an agreement with UF to donate five acres of county land that it owned downtown, Jeff told me that this was more complicated, that he needed to make sure there were safeguards, that UF did follow through on its promises. So um, I think for for both the University of Florida as well as, uh, as Jeff Green, this was an unfolding negotiation, which I'm, I'm told is not unusual as it pertains to philanthropy and the naming of donations or properties. This is there an is an established process for this. UF has a large staff, is no stranger to these negotiations. I'm just not sure why um, why things went as they as they did and, 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 uh, and an agreement was it not able to be reached. Right. And I think that's a very important clarification to make for folks who may not understand that actual process. Uh, there's a lot of people in the community who were definitely expecting this campus. I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm speaking with Palm Beach Post business reporter Alexandra Clow about the University of Florida's decision to pause its plans for a campus in West Palm Beach. Were you looking forward to more graduate opportunities in the area or affected by this change? Call us 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Uh, so let's talk about the updates um, or if there is any updates, Alexandra. Is the campus right. construction paused indefinitely? Is there a timeline for negotiations? That Yes, another important point. Um, after the disclosure, after the Palm Beach Post wrote, you know, about this, this pause, which frankly, everyone had really been trying to keep secret, um, but which had been in the works for some time, um, everything didn't just became out in the open and the university announced that it was pausing this effort on Tuesday, but that was four days before 
today actually is a big meeting of UF Foundation officials and donors. So I think it was difficult for the university to keep asking donors for money when the UF did not have control of 12 acres for the campus, as they said. What happens now? Um, Jeff Green uh, told my colleague, Kimberly Miller, that he still would like to come up with a compromise and he still would like to, uh, to donate the land. And Steve Ross also said this week that he sees the possibility of this campus still taking place. Uh, in fact, he is speaking with the school district of Palm Beach County, which has land adjacent to the Dreyfus High School uh, right there in downtown West Palm about possibly using some of that land. So there are efforts afoot to salvage this land and also salvage the $100 million in state money that was awarded to UF for this campus. According to legislation uh, that was uh, drafted last year, UF already has the money and it doesn't have to be deployed in West Palm Beach if this campus doesn't come to pass. Right. So the county, local officials, stakeholders still want this campus plan to happen. And um, I think people are working hard to see if that's possible. And, and I was, nothing, and that, nothing is certain right now. Nothing's certain. And, and I was gonna, I was going to bring up that $100 million investment. Thanks for, thanks for bringing that up. Um, what happens if UF campus doesn't happen? Does this set a sort of new precedent? Well, UF already has that money. And according to the language um, of the, uh, of the state award, they can deploy it elsewhere if the board votes that makes that decision by vote. Uh, as you may be aware, the city of Jacksonville also is trying to bring a University of Florida campus to its city. That money could theoretically go toward that campus, although um, that hasn't specifically been stated. I do know that University of Florida really wants to be in South Florida, the concentration of companies, executives, philanthropy, professionals, uh, the population of the student body is very attractive to the University of Florida and they see this as an important market for future growth. Right. So for all those reasons, I think there is a lot of motivation on every part of this whole enterprise to try to make this this campus still happen, right. and it, it it might still happen, but I think for right now, it's uh, it's kind of it's kind of a mess, quite honestly. Yeah, well, well, Gator fans in West Palm Beach will have to buckle up and wait till see. Uh, Alexandra Clough covers business for the Palm Beach Post. Alexandra, thank you so much for sharing your reporting with our listeners. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Still to come, a former journalist has been elected to serve as a District 2 Commissioner for the City of Miami. What's her platform and how will she serve her community? 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. There's a new commissioner in town. After a special election, Sabina Covo now fills the seat vacated by former city commissioner Ken Russell. The city of Miami's District 2, which encompasses Coconut Grove, Virginia Key, Brickell, Morningside, Edgewater, and downtown Miami, has had a vacant seat since December. 
Russell had to resign from the commission before the end of his four-year term after unsuccessfully running for Congress in last year's election. Now, former journalist and political newcomer uh, Sabina Kovo has been elected to serve as the District 2 commissioner for the remainder of Russell's term. According to the Miami Herald, Kovo is the first woman and the first Hispanic person to hold this seat. Commissioner-elect Sabina Kovo is joining us to discuss her new position and how she plans to serve the people in her district. Thank you for joining us, Commissioner-elect Kovo. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, you're a political newcomer who won against 13 other candidates in the race. How did your campaign stand apart from the other candidates running for the seat? We stood apart in different ways, but I think one of the most relevant decisions that was made by District 2 voters is that I'm very transparent. I was the only one that wasn't, I would say, part of uh, political history like you did mention, but I was a political news reporter for over 20 years. And that, I think, gave me an advantage to be not an insider, an outsider, but actually um, I prepared myself to be extremely objective. I think that in this occasion, transparency won, and I am very happy and thankful. I think District 2 won. And as a political newcomer, you're talking about transparency here. Would you consider yourself an outsider? At this point, of course, I'm an outsider. I did work for the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services as their spokesperson. So I resigned to a position and then I filed my papers to to run for for District 2, City of Miami Commission. You've covered politics as a journalist for over 20 years, like you said. Uh, What did you see about the local government establishment that inspired you to run in the first place? Quality of life for my district is extremely important, and I think for the whole city of Miami. The city of Miami has been, unfortunately, very dysfunctional in the past years. And as a resident of the district for over 22 years, I felt that this was the perfect position for someone who was advocating for quality of life and for the community. And um, a lot of things that were going on within the city, I didn't agree with. And I think that I'm going to be trying at least to bring more respect and more decency to the way the commission meetings are going to happen. My district needed more representation, so I'm going to make some changes that are already being um, taking place by Human Resources next week, meaning I want three community advocates that are within my office. We are a super um, diverse district. As you may know, you mentioned our neighborhoods. Each of the, uh, I would say, needs of the neighborhoods are very specific. So I think management skills are also bring. Um, a great situation to the table. And then, of course, my first commission meeting is actually on Thursday. Hmm. Um, you, you talk about, we'll, we'll discuss the sort of diversity part. You talked about some of the things that you didn't agree with in your city. Can you be a, a little bit explicit about that? Within the way that the city dynamics work? Yeah. Uh, you, with- you said there were certain things that you didn't agree with that you wanted to sort of tackle. What, what were some of the things you disagreed with in the city? Well, many times when you sit down on the commission meetings, you see that there's disrespect towards the constituents that come and actually express an opinion. There's also times where the commissioners don't get along or, or where they don't get along with county commissioners or with the state. So items get deferred, items just don't go through. And that's actually a pain at all on the people who actually need um, what a city commissioner really does. We are your advocate. We are the person that needs to be 
on top of things, on top of infrastructure, quality of life, our parks and recreation spots, opportunities for everyone. And we've seen that it's all backed up with big economic interest from groups. And then uh, the rest um, is just doesn't happen. And so you're suggesting that there were some internal infighting happening and you, you, I guess, have a way to sort of solve that to some respects? I can only be responsible for the way that I act, but I am a good negotiator. I am very diplomatic. Many people know me here in town for being 20 years on TV and being a very respectful person. Um, not only respectful towards my community, but to, towards my coworkers. And then I own a small business. Um, it's actually a communications agency. We do work for Latin American um, countries. And I think that as a manager, I've always managed to be a good person. And that's going to make a difference within the way that the city commission is being run. You brought up diversity earlier in the segment. You're the first woman and Hispanic person to hold this seat. Did you know that fact coming into the race? And does that have an impact on how you'll serve your district? I did know, and a lot of the people that I spoke to when I was preparing to run for office, so I was actually studying my possibilities last year. And the Roots List, which is a non-for-profit that actually trains and encourages women to run, they gave me a mini training, and then they trained me more, and then they asked me if I really wanted to, to run for office. When that was happening, someone told me, Sabina, you're never going to win. This has been an anglo sit specific for men for a long time. And I said, you know what? I have the courage. I have the empathy towards my community. Let me go for it. And it just happened. So history is not so, not always written the way that it was supposed. Right. And, and how do you think your identity as a Hispanic person in this particular community will help help you serve the needs of folks who voted for you? What sort of impact does that I, make? I think that at this time and for the type of job that I'm going to be doing, it's going to have no impact. We did change a little bit in the way that our district, because first of all, we were redistricted. Um, and there's a lawsuit that the city of Miami right now is handling regarding that. But we also went from being more of an Anglo district to I think the map right now is 40% Anglo, 40% Hispanic. And then I think that the rest would be within African-American and the others, right? But I've been, I would say, an advocate for every type of minority nationality. I did get endorsements from SAVE. I got the endorsement um, from Sanitation Union. So I think that I can pull together the community. So being Hispanic is not going to be relevant. I also went to Florida International University. I came to the United States at 17. My three children were born here. We're American. This shouldn't make a difference. Right. Um, and, and let's talk about that. It shouldn't make a difference. So let's segue to priorities. You're holding office on the five-person commission until November when District 2 voters will have an election again. What are some of the main issues that need to be addressed in your district? The first issue that needs to be addressed, and that's why I already requested a meeting with planning and zoning, is infrastructure. And I want to focus on climate resiliency, storm damage, sea level rise. But of course, in nine months, you're not going to be able to make big projects happen. We are going to be implementing an, an eco team that is going to be out there, very similar to um, what Commissioner Reyes did for his district. His squad was called, or, or it's called um, the beautifying team. But we need to make sure that we are actually uh, pointing out the street and housekeeping items that the City of Miami Commission 
needs to take care so we don't go into catastrophes or we don't go into real, real, real problems. So that's when, that's going to be key for me. And those are the little items that the constituents want. For example, the constituents in Edgewater, to, to talk specifically about a, a specific topic, they don't have a community center. This is something that we can make happen probably not in nine months, but at least we can get it started, right? There is a bay walk and a river walk that are ready, they were approved, and it goes after the bay, the Brickle Bay Drive project. Let's make sure that they're all into code, that they are all the same, so we can actually um, also make this happen afterwards. Uh, I have an item coming up um, that has to do with affordable housing. There are things that have to do with workforce housing. Mm -hmm. Those and, items, and, and, and let's let's stick with those two. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, what, what sort of solutions do you have for uh, affordable and workforce housing? Uh, it's it's one thing, obviously, to have it on your sort of priorities list, but you have actual sort of solutions in 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 regards to fixing those issues. The first thing that we need to do is that we need to ensure that the building department doesn't take too long with the permits. Because as you know, affordable housing has two ways of being looked at. One would be, how can the city build more units? That's that's one side of the situation. But the other side of the situation is, how do we encourage developers to not only build ultra luxury, which is extremely profitable for them, but do um, build affordable housing? So I've been speaking with different developers, asking them, what have, what's the issue? Why didn't you want to build affordable housing? And they said, well, the time that it takes for the permits. If you're building a building, it's going to take you seven, seven years and you're not going to make a huge profit. They didn't want to do it. So it's something that has to be looked um, with a loop because Miami 21 has loopholes, right? Right, As right. well. And, and I hate to cut so you off. We're running out of time. I'm, this was a, a lovely <laughs> conversation. Um, Sabina Covo is the city of Miami's new District 2 commissioner-elect, the first woman and first Hispanic person to hold the seat has a lot on her priority list. She will be sworn into office tomorrow. Commissioner-elect Kovo, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That would do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tway with help from Helen Acevedo this week. Uh, Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and shows technical supervisors, Peter J. Mayers. Our e engagement editors, Katie Cohen. And I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thanks for listening. And remember, stay hydrated. WLRN Public Media.